The views and opinions expressed on the 10-8 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 10-8 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the 10-8 podcast. This is a special Cop Council episode. Joining me as always is Project 109. We've got Stephanie and we've got George. What's going on, guys? Hey, yo. Hello. And uh, today's episode is actually going to be kind of one of our more difficult conversations to say. Uh, we're going to be talking about line of duty deaths. This is a uh, unfortunately an all too real topic for those of us in law enforcement and even those of us that support law enforcement. Yeah, this is always one of those topics that's really hard to talk about, hard to touch on. People don't want to think about it. People don't want to acknowledge it. Um, It's kind of one of those where we just bury it and we move on. And those officers, those responders, um, those family members that are directly affected by it um, kind of get stuck handling it on the inside and and internalizing everything. Um, And it it becomes this cycle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I I've been lucky knock on wood, I haven't experienced this uh, firsthand, but I've spoke, I've spoken to many people through the meme page, through the podcast um, that have, and it's just, I couldn't even begin to fathom what goes through the person's mind as a survivor of a line, line of duty death. It's just inexplicable, I'm sure. Yeah, especially in, in today's climate. Um, it, it's kind of an elephant in the room for agencies and, and employees. Um, but it's, it's something that it, it's not in the forefront, but it's definitely in our thoughts uh, being in public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's a hard, hard existence. Um, especially my agency has been, been blessed so far. Uh, knock, again, knock on wood. Don't jinx it. <laughs> um, but I saw it in my hometown PD. Um, many, many years ago. And it's scary. It's, mm-hmm. it's scary. And a lot of times we don't want to admit to the fear of it, but it's also something that we have to be ready for and, and get on, get on board with, you know, practicing the good mental health techniques, but also being there for each other and, mm-hmm. and being part of the collective unit and coming together and rallying around each other. Right. Absolutely. And I think another important thing for those you know, not even surviving or not, not the survivors necessarily, but the lineage and the, you know, it's been 20 years since my department had a line of duty death, but it's important to learn 
from, you know, the circumstances that led to those tragic losses and also to remember them. Obviously, um, I don't know if, if you're familiar, but like at our, in our agency on the anniversary date, they will leave a rose on their like plaque and everything like that, which is nice. But one of the things that one of my FTOs did, he made us, he made me go to the cemetery one shift and clean the the monument for law enforcement. And, uh, you know, that's just a nice humbling moment where, you know, you stop and think and like, you know, you learn about the people that have passed at your agency and, you know, you you don't want their sacrifice to be in vain. You want there exactly. to be something to take away from it. Um, I've been fortunate uh, when I went to the academy. It was mandatory that we did a paper, uh, do research on one of the officers from our department that was killed in the line of duty. Um, and we're going on over 60 years ago, I think was mm-hmm. the most recent one. Um, but the same token is even to this day, my department has a memorial out front. Mm-hmm. Um, on the anniversary of their passing, the department goes to the graveside uh, with flowers um, just as a solemn remembrance of their sacrifice. Um, but that's the other thing is their their death should not be in vain, you know, mm-hmm. keeping the memory and the legacy alive. Absolutely. And um, joining us in just a few is going to be Sergeant Lamont Quarker from Rialto Police Department, and he's going to talk about uh, his experience with it. And um, I don't know. It's still just hard. And we were talking and kind of previewing the conversation that we had with him, but how that affects spouses as well, Stephanie, you yeah. know, it's, I, I don't even know. Like, obviously you sign up to be a police spouse, you know, you, you say I do and you don't real. I mean, I'm sure you do realize, but when it actually is happening or, or just any critical incident, obviously we're talking about line of duty deaths, but any critical incident when you're like, wait a second, that's, that's, that's my guy out there. Like that's, it's gotta be nerve wracking. It's really easy to say. And I think I have, mm, I don't know that I can necessarily say that I have like the full blown, like police wife perspective, like other police wives or other first responder wives out there because so many significant others, you know, husbands, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives, whatever. I'm not discriminating. Um, so many significant others out there don't have any like experience in public safety. Mm-hmm. So they truly have that unadulterated, completely natural, full-blown spouse or significant other perspective. Um, I'm kind of stuck somewhere in the middle because I have been a first responder myself. 18 years of my life has been in public safety. I grew up in the police department. Like this is all I've ever known. So I kind of knew what I was getting myself into, whereas other spouses don't necessarily have a freaking clue. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, it was still a tough decision. I always said I was never going to marry a first responder. I was never going to get involved, um, because I knew the possibilities and the stresses and holy shit, what if, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's hard because when you fall in love with somebody, you can't necessarily pick their career. And for a lot of spouses out there, you got married to them when they were an accountant or worked at a bank or hell worked at Cumberland farms, you know, serving coffee and gasoline, And then, you know, they move on to get, you know, a a 20, 25 year law enforcement career. You didn't necessarily sign up for that. It got kind of handed to you. And along with the big fancy diamond and the pretty white dress comes, you know, your husband's badge and everything blue line. And, and it's hard. It's a hard culture to adapt to. But as a spouse who is now no longer involved in public safety, I'm seeing much more of that civilianized viewpoint of, okay, my husband's leaving for work tonight what can happen? And mm-hmm. I play the what ifs and I don't sleep much. He works third shift. I don't sleep much. Yeah, I stay up and yeah. I watch TV and I text him. How's work going every, every couple hours, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's hard. Cause I, 
sometimes I won't get the response from him. Sometimes it'll be a few hours till I hear from him and my mind just starts racing. And the rational side of me knows he's fine. But I also know that those one-off moments of, holy shit, things just went very, very sideways and we didn't see that coming also happen. And so I, I love Lamont's wife's response to this um, and everything that he talks about with her and how she really tipped him off that, hey, sir, you have a problem, which mm-hmm. we now have a problem. Um, it's a team effort. It really is. And I feel like there's not enough support out there for spouses along with the first responders. They feel like it's it's a whole unit that has to be addressed, not just the first responder and not just the spouse. It kind of needs to be everybody. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard all the way around. And I know, um, losing the Lieutenant that we lost in my husband's department, um, that was something I never saw coming. Never in a million years as a police wife did I prepare myself for what do we do if an officer takes his own life? That's different than a line of duty death. That's different Mm -hmm. than responding to a hot call and having something go wrong. That's just different, but it could have been any one of us as wives, you know, or, or significant others stepping out of that cruiser at that funeral. And, and it's so difficult to, you know, put your own significant others or your own officer's mortality, you know, that into focus and everything becomes hyper-focused on, holy shit, what if that was me? Mm -hmm. And you start spinning and going into, okay, now I need to prep. I need to prepare. I need to have this in place and that in place and this plan and make sure that there's life insurance policies and make sure that kids are taken care of. And I have backup plans for my backup plans. And it becomes this this kind of cycle. Um, And I would love at some point to sit down and be able to have a conversation with Lamont's wife because having, you know, now knowing that she lived through that, that's a hell of a perspective to offer our first responder significant others um, out there of how to prepare and how mm-hmm. to mentally get ready without putting that stress on our significant other. Because we can't just walk up to our husband or our wife or whatever before they go on patrol and be like, hey, so what do we do if somebody like right. gets shot? Or what am I, what do I do if you get shot? You know, we can't put that stress on our significant right. other and I, I, for work. I think that was a great, what you just said was great because, you know, we get trained in the academy and in field training, like, Hey, at least I did. It was a specific class. It was like officer involved shootings. Like this is what's going to happen. If you get in a shooting, you're going to go here. This is going to happen. Yada, 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 but nothing for our families. There's no like family police academy. And I feel like there, that should be something that we should look. I mean, we as a profession, not just the three of us sitting here, but should look into like, that would be my, incredible. A crash yeah. course for, for, you know, first responder, regardless of what role you play in public safety. Right. I don't care yeah. if you're an, an animal control officer, a correction officer, probation, parole, you know, fire, police, EMS, dispatch. You need a crash course. Mm-hmm. Your whole family. Like, there should be a, an academy for kids of, like, what not to talk about or what not to say in public. You know, mm-hmm. my kids are the first one to, to laugh and joke. Officer George can we get some snacks? And we're at at Walmart and they think it's the most hilarious thing ever to call him officer George, because that's what all the kids in the school used to call him when he was a school mm-hmm. resource officer. And I got to turn around and like, hold up my hand, like, <laughs> like that motion of like, I will smack you. Don't say it, <laughs> you know? And, and we have to teach them at such a right. young age, not only what not to say or what not to do in public, but why we can't do these things. And that's a sobering moment when you're telling, you know, your five-year-old, your six-year-old, your seven-year-old, you can't say these things because it, it could it could get us shot or it could get mm-hmm. dad shot. You know, it's right. You never know. It sucks. Yeah, especially nowadays. I remember when I um, 
I just got hired. I was doing part-time prisoner transport with my uh, agency and I lived about 40 minutes away from where I worked. So I thought that was like safe enough. Yeah. Safe bubble distance. And um, (laughs) my sister and I, now my sister and I were police kids. Like our our father was a police officer. He retired a sergeant and we went out to drink one night again, 40 minutes away from work. And you know, she kind of would bust my balls about being a cop, whatever, no big deal. And she starts talking to this lady at the bar and the lady's upset. She's distraught and starts talking about things. And I'm on the other side. So, you know, think of my sister in the middle. She's on one side. I'm on the other. And my sister goes, hey, this lady has a really interesting story. She tells me and I go, we need to go. Like the exact <laughs> story. She, right now. <laughs> right. And she's like, oh, OK, OK. And as we're walking out of the bar, I'm like. I was there. Like that story she's telling, that was I was involved I was in involved. that. Involved. I don't yeah. want to go anymore. Right, right. And I was like, we we need to go home. So she's like, okay, okay. She's like, but she's just waiting for a ride. I'm like, I don't care. We we are not her ride. Let's go. So we get to the parking lot. I get in the car. I'm in the back seat. It was like a two door like coupe or whatever. And uh, just so happened that the lady's daughter ended up getting there as we were leaving. And so my sister's like talking to her. And it's like, oh, yeah, your mom's in there. No big deal. And I look at the lady, the the daughter, and I'm like, we really need to go now. Like <laughs> from a completely different incident, this daughter was involved with me. And I'm like, no, we like I'm like punching the chair. I'm like, we got to go. And then I told my sister, she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like we you know, when I give the high sign, we need to go. Like, don't don't ask questions. Don't keep chatting. Let's go. And that that goes to the whole crash course thing. Like family doesn't. It, again, we were raised in that situation, but we still didn't know. So yes, I, I agree completely. Families need a crash course because, again, you can grow up in the environment and still, when it's happening, not know what to do. Well, right. that that goes like off duty. I uh, I'm I always carry my American Express card as it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I never leave home without it, and it's to the point though where we have a, a safe word, where mm-hmm. it's if those words come out of my mouth. You grab the kids and get away from me. I'm mm-hmm. the target. Start backing up. Take everybody else out of the picture, and I'm I'm going to defend what I need to defend. We had a situation uh, where it almost came into play. Yeah, and it was one. It was somebody that I've arrested, um, and it was a very public setting. And I'm there with my wife, my kids. My ex-wife, so not awkward at all. Oh my of god, it was not. ridiculous to begin with. <laughs> but but it, it was this situation where this person recognized me. And but thankfully, now, both me and your ex-wife, we both knew the system because we've both been married to you. So her and I looked at each other. We're like, "Yep, time to go." See ya. And her and I both like we put our bullshit aside and like we just wrangled the kids and got out of there. Right. And we're watching from around the corner, like trying to see. We're like, "What's right. going down?" Yeah, and and nothing happened. Thankfully, but the same token is that doesn't mean that's every time. And and that's unfortunately, you have to have these conversations with your families, with your kids. It's uncomfortable, but you have to have contingency plans, you know, Mm -hmm, plans upon plans because. But even just going out in public, like, you know, your American Express card is always on one particular side of you all the time. So I know that if I'm going to hold your hand or walk next to you, I have to be on the other side of you because that hand always has to be free. Or if we're carrying something through the store, we've got our arms full of clothes for our four kids. I'm the one carrying it. He's got one of his hands free at all times. And, you know, it's it, these little things that, like, we no longer think about. They're just a part of our daily life. But mm-hmm. we had to learn those somewhere along the way. I had to be taught those things somewhere along the way. 
as a spouse, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's strange. It's strange. Being a public safety first responder, whatever significant other is a weird lifestyle. <laughs> it it's really is. Some days. It really is. And um, anyway, we're going to, um, we're going to transition to the interview with Lamont. Um, like I said, this is kind of a harder conversation to have. Um, it did get emotional, which is fine. This That's what needs to be happened. That's, that's part of the, why we do these episodes. Um, but I think it, it's an amazing episode. I love talking to Lamont, period. And uh, when we have these conversations specifically. Um, so everyone just uh, sit back and enjoy. Here comes our interview and our conversation with Mr. Lamont Park. When winter falls, next year I'll be Calling all my oldest friends Saying sorry for this mess we're in And I'm waiting Waiting For the sun to come and melt this snow Wash away the pain and give me back Control Control And we'll hold our heads up Knowing that he's fine We'd all be lucky to have a love like that In a lifetime The following conversation contains factual stories Involving a line of duty death So all trigger warnings should be uh, anticipated It does have to do with a real life life or death story so those of you affected by similar situations um, just take that into account anyway here's our conversation all right and welcome back to the episode joining me is stephanie and george frantic with project 109 hello hello and joining us is our guest today it's going to be sergeant lamont corker from rialto police department what's going on man how are you Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for having me back, man. Absolutely. It's a pleasure having you back. As everyone knows, Lamont has uh, really grown. He's a friend of the show. He's a friend of the meme page and a friend of me all rolled into one. So very happy to have you back. Um, just for everyone who may have missed episode two of the first or of the podcast, our first uh, conversation together, Lamont, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, we'll we'll get to the bulk of the episode today. Awesome, man. So yeah, like I said, my name is Lamont. Um, I've been a police officer now for, this is my 17th year. Still feels weird to say that, but uh, 17th years. Um, I work in a small town here in Southern California. Uh, I've been there my entire career. Um, I am uh, currently a new sergeant. I uh, just hit my second year as a sergeant. So uh, I've had a good career, been able to do a couple different things from working a street narcotics team. I was on the SWAT team for about 11 years. I stayed on the SWAT team until I, I promoted. Uh, I worked back in the detective bureau, uh, worked a variety of desks. When I left, I was assigned to the robbery homicide desk, and that was exciting. Uh, so now I'm back in patrol, uh, weekend night watch with uh, 
all the new guys who are keeping me young and giving me gray hairs, but it's, uh, I love it because those guys are so motivated just to come to work and just, uh, the old adage, uh, the old saying, I'm just happy, just happy to be here. So like, seriously, those guys, they all have that attitude. And, uh, it's kind of hard to have a bad day when you're working around a bunch of guys like that. Uh, not saying there's anything wrong with those, you know, quote unquote, salty guys who've been on the job forever, but it's definitely a different vibe working with a bunch of new guys fresh out of the Academy and fresh off training. So, uh definitely having a good time very cool and uh as we've as you said you know you've done a myriad of things lots of experience uh this is the first time in in one of my episodes we've got two bosses in the room because i know george is a sergeant as well so i'm sure he can kind of relate to a lot of things you just said yep as as you've done a lot more than i have um i'm 17 years on uh about a year on the road as a sergeant um and I have kind of the opposite side where it's the third ship guys or the senior guys who are a little bit saltier. They're the salt of the earth. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) You thought day shift was bad. Try going third shift in my department, but uh, great group of guys and girls. Um, But it's, it's, it's awesome to hear that, that the career is still being led by people who are dedicated to their community. But it also sounds like your your up and coming officers really are are excited to be there, which is awesome. It really is, and especially in a time like this, uh, one of the officers who are assigned to my shift, she just cleared training, and um, it was really nice that actually my captain came and handed me a note and says, "Hey, I need you to give this uh, to to your officer," and it was folded and it was basically a note. I don't really know what the contents were, but. That, that spoke volumes for me to, to have a captain recognize that you have this officer who, again, just happy to be there, didn't need any type of recognition from anyone, let alone our captain. Uh, we, we're a smaller department. We only have two captains and our chief. But for, for the, our captain to think that much to say, you know, let me just show a little appreciation to this officer. And our officers really need that, especially now. And these officers who are just entering this, this profession um, you know, this officer was in the academy when we were at the height of kind of our civil unrest. And I, I can't say that I would have been strong enough uh, back when I started in 2003, if all that stuff was going on to say, dude, do I really want to do this? Um, right. th- this is insane. So um, to have the caliber of folks that we have who are still raising their hand, wanting to come in and do what we do, um, it, it's like it's inspiring. Uh, is, is the best word I can think of. It's just really inspiring to have people still willing to, you know, quote unquote, come out and hold the line and serve their community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for the past year, well, we're not at a full year yet, but from last summer to right now, to think about people that were either in the police academy or in training, seeing everything go on within the past year and still go, you know what? Yep, I still want to suit up. Not to that extent, to the fact that they're happy and excited to go to work. That is yeah. that speaks volumes yeah. about their character and just their mental fortitude for sure. It would have been Absolutely. so easy for them to just be like, nope, screw this. I'm out. Like, this is too much mm-hmm. for me. This is not what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it seems there's, I mean, there's obviously always going to be that group where they're like, no, thank you. Here's your shit. We're out. Right. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it seems like there's still a really good, really strong crowd where they, you know, kind of that military mentality where you sit and watch the news and you just see shit unfolding left and yeah. right. And, and they're like, nope, let's go. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not worried mm-hmm. about this. We've got it. Um, right. It's nice to know that there's still, you know, that community within our public safety realm here that that still really wants to get up and go and they're not deterred 
Um, right. But... It's that saying, like, if not me, then who? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, and the fact that there's still people that have that mentality. And, and Stephanie, like you said, like, it could have been so easy for them to be like, nope, I'm good. I'm going to go back to whatever else I could do. Um, and I honestly wouldn't fault people for saying that. Like, it's good to recognize that and be like, nope, not for me. But extra kudos for people that stuck it out know what you're getting into right now and um you know still, it's still taking up that torch and and wanting to better the the departments in their community yeah absolutely that's, that's and, you know some people are even seeing it as the the protests and civil unrest as almost a motivator like you know what this is a turning point in our nation so i want to be part of this change i want to help for you know because I've, I've talked to people from inner cities who have had bad relationships with the police in the past and they're like you know what i've seen things maybe not to this extent but i've seen things like this and this is my chance this is my opportunity to make to an effect a change in the community so hats off to everybody that's still signing up and i get messages all the time about people that are like you know what i'm still pursuing this i still am actively looking to be a police officer. So uh, before we go any further, I just want to give kudos to everybody that's still kind of wanting to get started because this is a hell of a time to get started, let me tell you. Yeah. Absolutely. And Lamont and George, you've been in the career way longer than I have, so I'm sure you've seen the the roller coaster ride as it is, but this is definitely one of the, the worst peaks or valleys, whichever way you want to look at it, that we've ever endured. Yeah, this, this roller coaster ride has definitely come off the rails, but at least up here in, in Connecticut, it, it's been relatively uh, a conversation. Um, we've Don't had, jinx it. We've had some <laughs> uh, laws passed about police accountability um, and some things like that. Not so much the defund movement per se. However, we're still seeing an uptick in, in violent crime and thefts and things. So it, it's, it makes our job difficult. But when the departments are doing a good job of community policing and having a good conversation uh, uh, with the community and having an understanding and working together, that's when things can really change for the better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And uh, our, our, I was going to just lead into you, Lamont. Like our last conversation was all about working together with the community. And that's so important these days. I mean, more so oh, than yeah. it was before. Yeah. If, if, if uh, if you look at it like an investment in the bank, you know, we, we invested in community policing um, way back when, when I first came on um, our, our chief had this philosophy of like, we are going to be involved in our community and we are going to reach out across the aisle and find out what are the needs of the specific communities that we, that we serve. So when all of this stuff happened um, back going, I think in May is kind of when it was the height, at least here in California, uh, we, we had a, a little protest in our city and it's very peaceful. And we actually had people who actually live there in, in Rialto because some of the people who did want to show up and quote unquote cause trouble were not even uh, Rialto residents, mm-hmm. but the ones who um, actually lived in the city recognized that yes, can policing improve? Of course, and any profession out there can absolutely do better. However, the things that uh, some of the things that are being spouted um, is not the case here with our with our police department. And we didn't have anything, at least in our in our town, with uh, some of the things that we saw in our neighboring cities with um, full blown riot and looting. We, we didn't have any of that, um, be it luck, be it the investment in the in, in community policing. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but we, we didn't have that. And um, to this day, we still recognize that. Yeah. 
mistakes are going to be made and we have to step forward and say you know what we made a mistake and our and our chief is, is he's he understands that he says it all the time You're like hey if something happens we're going to get out in front of it and we're not going to make excuses and we're going to be transparent we uh we have body-worn cameras and our chief is all about if something happens hey release the footage and let people judge on their own because the cat the footage is going to be out there anyway if you have a major mm-hmm. incident you mm-hmm. have folks with cell phones at their at their disposal so either you release your video or you let someone else release the video and then sell the narrative that they want to sell on, on your yeah. incident. So yeah. that that's a great mentality to kind of get ahead of it. And, you know, if there's going to be an incident, let us give the full story, not, you know, the 30 second clip that someone got on their Snapchat or whatever. It might be. Exactly. Exactly. Well, cause it gives the, um, like that per that public perception. I mean, cause let's be honest, like the public will, see and experience what they want to see and experience um to begin with but jumping off of that they like to generally take the idea of um you know we as an agency or you know as a department didn't release it first therefore we must have been trying to cover it up Mm -hmm. so the minute you know if there's like a facebook live where there's no way a department could have released it before the general public you know keyboard warrior did you know, it's it's going to be an automatic. Nope, they didn't. You know, they didn't release it immediately. They should have released it immediately. The public got it out there before the department did. Therefore, they're they're automatically trying to cover it up, and therefore right. they don't care about community policing. Um, and I think that's that's the other battle that you guys are facing as well. And it, I mean, it just sucks all the way around. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in the past couple months, my department's been involved in a couple critical incidents and. I'd like to say that my chief is kind of in the, the Rialto kind of mindset where they're like, Nope, we're going to get this out right now before any statements made. Like, like, let's, let's go, let's show them what happened. And hopefully facts will form public opinion as opposed to the opposite way. Cause so many times in the, in the past year, the public opinion is formed before we know all the facts. So, yes. and you know, once we can start fixing people's minds, then, then hopefully, and I get frustrated too, because no matter how many times you say, you know, police are good, police run towards danger, yada, 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 there's still going to be that, that group that doesn't matter what the facts are, they're still going to be against what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but the more that we can combat that, I mean, sometimes it looks like, you know, you're just, you're peeing up a rope, but... <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it's the first it's, time I've heard that. Yeah, same really? here. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad to give you guys that. Um, <laughs> Might have to borrow that one. Just yeah, for, yeah, go for that. That's, thank you. That's a 10-8 exclusive right there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's something that we try to accomplish first. But it, it also goes to leading from the front because, yes. again, especially in this day and age, the cell phone cameras are everywhere. Your body worn camera can catch. Everything and nothing all at the same moment. That's very true. But the the burden really is on us as as the community policing agency to create those inroads, even with the people who, who say, no, we, we hate the cops. We hate this. We hate that. It's about changing the perception. Yep. And when you have the right officer doing the right job in the community policing model, guess what happens? Massive change. Um, I've been fortunate enough where I've been assigned to work in one of our larger parks. Uh, I was also a school resource officer. To this day, the return on the investment has been a hundredfold 
because of just being able to make the contacts with the community, the inroads with the kids. And that's that's also now part of the, the losing proposition is now even at the federal level, they're calling for the removal of SROs from school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That That is, at least for, for our agency, that is our bread and butter beside like the Explorer, the Cadets program of community policing. Right. Um, so, and unfortunately, there are people who are, who are saying, nope, we, we need to do away with that. And they're on the admins. It sounds like both of your agencies and, and mine as well, they're sitting here saying, no, it pays dividends. Why would we get rid of it? Yeah. It's all yeah. about helping the community and changing that perception and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And like you said, when you, when you have someone or an agency, you know, that fortifies that, I mean, you, you think about a kid, think about a young kid, their perception of a police officer is a superhero. And then as they get older and they start kind of testing different waters, they might get in a little bit of trouble. But if you already have that good relationship built with your school resource officer, you're going to be like, all right, well, if he comes out and reaches, you know, tries to talk to me or whatever, it may not be a negative thing. Maybe there, you know, there, maybe there's a way we can kind of intercept this before it does become something so negative. So I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like it's an ever evolving thing more so now than ever. And it's, it's evolving so differently now and ever that, you know, we're, we're just going to have to take it a day by day and, and see what the narrative is and how the, uh, the rest of the country and the world wants to communicate and, and deal with it. Exactly. I think, and, oops, sorry. Go ahead. Lamont. No, no, I was just going to say that. And that's exactly what I, I tell my guys uh, and girls uh, on my shift is, the majority of the folks who we serve, one is out here, period. Uh, mm-hmm. Take it from someone who grew up in the hood, South Central LA. Yeah, were there people in my neighborhood who couldn't stand the police? Yeah, but trust me, the majority of us living there, one of the cops there. Uh, mm-hmm. my, grandma, my grandma would say, you know, if the police weren't here, these, these fools would come in here and take everything out of my house. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, the the that cliche of the silent majority, I mean, that's, that's a real thing. And I, and I'm able to kind of bring that perspective to some of these younger officers. Like, look, man, I, I grew up there. I lived there. I, I, I saw the stuff. And the majority of the folks we are serving one is out there. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to be on our social media team, as I, as I spoke about last time. And the, the support is there. Our, our, I get to see our department DMs and, and the support is there. It's just uh, sometimes the, the loudest voice is the one that gets all the coverage, but um the support is there. We just have to, we just have to remain mindful of that when we go out, just do the right thing for the right reasons. And the, the support will, will, will be there. We'll always have our hiccups and trip and fall here and there. But uh, I think as long as we continue to own up to our mistakes and continually try to improve the majority of our, of our uh, community will be uh, behind us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. I just wish the support was a little, I mean, just as a police wife, I, I would love to see the support a little bit more boisterous than yeah. the people who kind of go against it only because it takes such a severe toll on the mental health of our public mm-hmm. safety. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. to have the like the loud and proud support um, would really, I, I think it would really help the officers along. It would really help all of public safety in general know that, okay, you know, they're not the silent majority anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like that would make all the difference because with all the stressful times and, you know, injuries and loss of officers and stuff, I mean, it just, it takes a hell of a toll, as you know, and I just, sometimes I just kind of would love to just see people being 
loud about being really supportive instead of kind of that sheepish like wallflower where you get like, right right where they stuff i was gonna the drug say deal yeah, exactly. right, right. <laughs> hey, like, they got to look over both shoulders. Hey, I just want to let you know, I support you. Right. Yeah. Right. What is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when all this kicked off, like we took all the blue line stuff down, like, you know, we didn't have a ton of it to begin with, but like, you know, he had a blue line sticker on his truck. Not that you can't pick his truck out of, you know, a lineup anyway, <laughs> but it was okay. Hurry up and take all the blue line stuff down. And we had to teach our kids, like, you know, not that they were loud about it anyway, but like, guys, we don't talk about this. We keep it silent. Like, Mm-hmm. that takes a toll on public safety as well, having to hide who you are and, and really like go re- as recluse as you can while still being very public. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I had a family party yesterday or the other day and uh, I was late cause I had to work. And as I walked in, it was uh, some family friends and, and family. My sister goes, Oh look, the cops here busted my balls. She meant nothing by it. <laughs> Thanks. But, but, but the looks of everyone else that just looked at me as I walked in the door, I was like, what, do I have a booger? Like, what's going on here? Like, it was and, – and then, like, as I was getting, like, comfortable in the party, everyone got up and walked away. I'm like, what is that? Like, did, which is, did, Do I smell? Like, right, what the, right, right. It was, yeah, yeah. I, I smell like bacon, I guess. <laughs> but that that's the other thing, too, is, like, when I first started on, on my path in this field – um, I had friends from high school um, that I was really close with. And as I progressed and got through the academy and got off FTO and was on my own, they quickly left. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's the other unfortunate thing. Yeah. You know, law enforcement, first responders, EMS, um, fire, we all kind of congregate together because that's who we know and we kind of trust. Mm-hmm. the other problem is, well, I can't say the other problem. What I tell our, our newer officers is whatever you do, have friends that are not in this career field. Mm-hmm. They it's will get harder and harder. Yeah. It is. But the same token is we tend to see it from a whole different perspective. Whereas the, the quote run of the mill civilian, the normal people, the norm, yeah, the, nor- <laughs> the norms, they still see the world as this kind of sunshine and rainbows place. It's the rose colored glasses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we need bifocals. Yeah. We need the rose-colored glasses on one end, and then we need the other kind of lens on the other. So you yeah. need that give and take. You're right, and I think um, the other problem, George, with having just police friends or just first responder friends is we get in this echo chamber where our opinion is always right, mm-hmm. and we're not thinking of it from a I, people hate when I say civilian, but from a civilian standpoint, you know, logical side of things, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they're looking at it and, you know, I, my, my niece was involved in something and she asked me questions and she was all up in arms and I'm like, you know, thinking, thinking like a cop. And, you know, it's just, you realize that people see things so differently than we do. And it's so important to get that perspective, like you're saying, because otherwise you're just going to be talking to yourself, essentially. Um, and of course, we're always right, because that's just our personalities. And it's important to have what everyone else thinks as well. It just, it, like you said, it keeps us grounded. Yeah. Well, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you've mm-hmm. got to mm-hmm. get a little bit of... I think the general public needs to be knocked down a couple pegs with the whole rose-colored <laughs> glasses thing. But mm-hmm. I think we also need to be lifted up a couple pegs in the mentality part where we need to stop being so dark. We need to come up a couple of shades of color yeah. and the public needs to be brought down a couple shades. We got to kind of meet somewhere in the middle yeah. so that we start to see that there is good in the world and the general public can start to acknowledge 
there are shit bags on the planet. Right, yeah. so right. Um, we need to lessen that gap. One of my favorite quotes, I don't even know where it came from, says something to the effect of um, every civilian knows what it's, no, I'm sorry, every cop knows what it's like to be a civilian, but not every civilian knows what it's like to be a cop. And I was like, that, that just says it perfectly. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, and that's kind of the idea but behind community policing, behind humanizing the badge. Like, you know, the more we do this, the more we show that, you know, we go home, we watch TV, we listen to the same music, whatever, but then opening that line of communication i think is just the whole point of all of it and hopefully the more we do it and the more we kind of interact with non-police officers and non-first responders we can make that um more of a reality and you know that's that's the hope i will say going back to talking about public support and kind of leading us into our our topic for today um the one time that i really got to see what our community thought of us Um, We had an officer um, pass away at my department. And when we, we did his uh, sea of blue to the, to the cemetery, you had all the, all the civilians lined up, all the citizens, I should say with, they had their blue flags out or thin blue line flags. They had their American flags out. Saw people like the, the record service that tows cars away for us. You know, they had their tow trucks out with a giant flag and everything. And it was such you know, it takes your breath away just seeing that support. It's like, you know, like the firefighters too, they lifted the flag up and like, you know, we work together, we bust balls, whatever, but to see that support when one of us goes down, it's just, it was absolutely took my breath away. And I was unfortunately part of another one um, in January and same thing. Like you just, you, you don't realize how much of a support system there really is out there and how many people really appreciate what we do. Yeah, they do. They do back us. Yeah, it's just, I mean, and of course there was one joker that was flipping us off as we drove by, but we won't talk about him today, but, um, (laughs) it's just, it's just crazy to, to see that once it's finally put to action. And if only those guys were just a little louder, like you said, Stephanie, that would, it would do wonders. Yeah. So our, our topic today, um, kind of goes in line with that. We're talking about line of duty deaths. Um, and it's very difficult, uh, today, is March 23rd. So uh, about a week before the actual release of the episode, maybe a little bit more. Um, But just yesterday, there was an officer involved uh, shooting and uh, and an officer in Boulder, Colorado passed away. So this is very fresh. Um, And Lamont is joining us today because uh, he has experienced this firsthand. Um, So Lamont, I'm going to start with, can you kind of give us the rundown of of your experience with this? And then we'll kind of open the conversation to there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so like I said, I, I started in uh, 2003, and I started during the same day, actually, as uh, my partner, uh, friend, uh, uh, Sergio Carrera Jr. So, um, a, a quick story about just to give everyone an idea who Sergio was. Um, I, I, w- I went to a, a police academy in Los Angeles County, Rio Hondo Police, uh, police Academy, and Sergio went to the academy over at the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. Now, even though we got hired right, right around the same time, I, I had never met him before. We were at two separate academies, and I had never laid eyes on him. So um, his class graduated about a day or two before mine, and then my class was like a day or two later. So my command staff and Sergio, along with the other people who graduated from the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Academy, came to my, my graduation ceremony. 
So we're there, they're taking photos, you know, it's, you know, it's our proud day for everyone. And uh, I introduced myself to Sergio, not knowing exactly who he was. I'm like, is this guy like one of the FTOs or, you know, who is this guy? And, he, you know, he was kind of, he was kind of stoic. So in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, he's got to be an FTO. They probably make the FTOs come to these things. They don't want to be here. And, oh, my God, he's that guy that we've heard about in the, through the academy, that FTO you don't want to have. So fast forward a week, we're back at the, we're back uh, at the police department and I'm, I'm talking to some people there and I'm kind of laughing and joking, which, you know, as a brand new trainee, I shouldn't have been doing, but you know, I thought we were in a safe little space talking to some other trainees and Sergio walks by and he goes, Hey, you, you need to lock it up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So someone wow. like, you need to lock it up. Yeah. And you better hope you're not, I, I don't get you as, uh, as, as my trainee. Cause you, I'm going to, I'm going to make your head spin. He says something to that effect. And he walks away. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, this guy, what a dick. Oh, my God, I don't want this guy to make you. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't until two or three days later after we we're done with our pre-orientation phase, because I got hired with, like, 13 other people, so we were in different areas of the police department. But uh, we all came together to get our FTO assignments. And I'm sitting there, and they're like, okay, Corker, you're going to have officer so-and-so. And Carrera, you're going to have officer so-and-so. I'm thinking, like, this fucking guy, he's a trainee. So from there, it, he got I, you I just, good. That's yo, a good he, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he got me. He got me good. He really got me. So um, uh, I actually shared that story at, at his funeral because there was a couple of people who I got hired with who actually remember that and who were in on it. So anyway, uh, so after that, I mean, we, we became tight. We, uh, we were kind of assigned to the same shift together, going through our training phase and you know, sharing in the struggles that every cop goes through uh, through the FTO phase from thinking, oh, my God, my FTO hates me. He's going to fire me. He made me run in the rain. He made me do this, you know, things that may be considered hazing now. Uh, but we're OK back in 03. So motivation, um, not hazing. Yeah, motivation. exactly. Exactly. I tell you this. I will never forget where I'm at after running a couple blocks in the rain when the FTO does the old stop the car. Where are we at? I'm down. I'm like, um, I think, nope, get out of the car and run back to the street sign. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the night I did that, it was pouring rain, but I digress. Uh, so <laughs> we, uh, Sergio and I came pretty close. Uh, we started hanging out a lot off duty. We, at the time, neither one of us, uh, you know, had kids or anything. Being brand new, we're working weekend. And it, it was it was not out of the ordinary to get a call at like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday night. Like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. You want to go to Vegas? Yeah, let's go to Vegas. You know, it's about a four hour drive from our house. Yeah, let's roll. Let's go, let's go to Vegas. And that's kind of what it was. So we, uh, we eventually, you know, complete FTO. We're working patrol. We're kind of sticking together, working the same shift. And, uh, I'll never forget we were working and, um, we had a, uh, like a shooting that happened and the suspect who was responsible for the shooting ran into an apartment and basically took hostages and barricaded himself. So that becomes a SWAT thing now. And these SWAT guys come out and, you know, you know, any cop knows, you know, the SWAT, they're like the top tier guys, right? So they're just kind of like giving us the, you know, get on the other side of the yellow tape type look. And I'm like, man, these guys are, you know, brand new they're officers. Like the, they're like the real cops. Right, exactly. So I'm sitting there with all like three, four years on. I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are so cool, right? So they, they're doing their thing and they, they, they do a hostage rescue and they actually get awarded for this incident that I'm talking about, uh, Medal of Valor from NTOA. And uh, I, right then, both of us were like, dude, that's, we got to join SWAT. That's pretty cool. So we, we start this whole journey together trying to get on the SWAT team. And super long story short, we end up joining the SWAT team together. Uh, that was like right around 06 is when we got on the SWAT team. 
So we uh, we do a couple of uh, you know a couple of missions together, and everything's everything's good. We we're doing you know high, like the majority of your SWAT teams out there are responsible for high risk warrants and barricaded subjects and things that are out of the ordinary that um, that are beyond the capabilities of your quote unquote normal patrol officer. If that makes sense. We fast forward to 07 and I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, getting married and stuff. And I tell Sergio, uh, Hey dude, you know, I want you to be the best man in my wedding. And he's like, Oh yeah, for sure. We're going to go to Vegas. I'm going to sign your bachelor party and all this stuff. Uh, for some reason I wanted to have a wedding in December. I think that was more of my wife, even though she says it was me, but it was her. So, um, that was the plan we were going to, we did end up getting married on December 17th of 07. So in October of 07, we, uh, we had a, we had a particular area in our city that had an uptake and just some narcotics related activity. And we know what comes along with that, you know, your shootings, your assaults and all that stuff. So our narcotics team, our gang team, um, aggressively addressed it, built cases on several folks on this particular street. And it was, you know, takedown time. It was the day that we were going to move in the, the detectives were armed with their arrest warrants for all these folks. And it was like, okay, time to, time to move in and make these, make the arrests. So it was several teams that came in to help from different departments, including one of our neighboring SWAT teams uh, from the Colton police department back when they had their own SWAT team. And at the time we were our own SWAT team. We have since regionalized uh, with some of the departments around us, including Colton. And um, the morning that, the, the the warrant that led to Sergio's murder. Uh, Sergio and I had actually worked the night before, uh, part of the night, and we we get off working graveyard and we we roll right into the uh, briefing for this for this uh, for this warrant that we're gonna do. So I'll never we're at the station, and we do our the the regular briefing. Hey guys, this is what we're doing. This is the the address. You know the thing that comes along with your standard you know briefing, and then we head out to our staging location, and. We, uh, we we jump off the Bearcat and we're, we're waiting around the corner for basically kickoff time. And I just, I'll never forget Sergio, one of the last things he said to me, he looks at me, he goes, Q, why are you looking all scared, bro? And I'm like, what are you talking? I just kind of laugh and everyone there is kind of laughing. And uh, he goes, dude, you know, he goes, you know, little, he would call me little Q, little Q, just, just get behind me. You'll be all right. And, and I just, that was just him. He was just, he was a, a huge shit talker, you know, sorry my language that's who he was he, he we would we would go back and forth all the time with each other so anyway um you know hit time comes around i think it was like six o'clock in the morning it was either six or seven and uh we start rolling into the location where to our target location right across the street was uh from our lo target location was another uh location that was being hit by our neighboring swat team um Colton Police Department, who at the time they had their own SWAT team, and at the time we had our own SWAT team. We have since regionalized um, together with Colton and another uh, police department, and we're now a regional SWAT team. So we um, we we go and we basically make entry into this house after doing the whole knock notice thing. And as we're making our way into the house, um, I can see the, the the main person who we're after. He's he's sitting there on the couch. He sees us coming uh, into the house. And he jumps up off the couch where he's sitting and he makes his way down the hall. Um, not going to get into too many specifics about tactics and stuff. Just kind of want to go over the stuff that was uh, released through the court process um, during, during the trial. Um, so 
our our suspect runs down the hall and if you can kind of imagine just a long hallway in a in a single story apartment with two doors on your right both leading to bedrooms two doors on your left one leading to a bat bathroom and all the way down at the end of the hall is a T intersection basically where the hallway ends and there's a bedroom across from one another so uh Sergio and I are basically number three and four in the stack going into the house. So one and two go all the way down to the T intersection after the guy who's, who's fleeing down the hall. And they catch up to him basically in the doorway um, of the bedroom to the right at the end of this hallway at this T intersection I described. So as we make our way down there, number one and two are dealing with our, our suspect who is now fighting with our number one guy. Uh, Sergio stages at the door leading to the bedroom that's directly across from the from the room where the fight is going on so that we can get in there and make sure while they're dealing with this guy someone doesn't emerge from the bedroom uh, you know because the officers backs are exposed Sergio stops at the door basically hey give him the tap that I'm with them and we go into the bedroom which turned out to be the master bedroom so small master bedroom and it actually has a an attached um, bathroom so Sergio goes in, he goes to the right, he's clearing the right side of his room. Uh, I actually hear him yell, um, you know, clear right. And as I am making my way, I see the, the bathroom is a very small bathroom. So uh, I make my way into there and I, I go into this bathroom, very small, small little uh, shower. I don't even think it really had a tub or anything, just like kind of stand up shower. I go in there, check it out. It's all clear just as, I, as, as I'm yelling clear left and I start to step out of the bathroom into the master bedroom, I hear uh, three uh, pops in, in quick succession. And uh, all the all the officers during this um, uh, sound our SWAT team were either carrying AR-15s or MP5s, both of which if you, for those who have shot either one of these on the range, you know, they're, they're pretty loud, especially the AR. So when I heard it go off, it, lit it sounded like firecrackers is what I thought it was which, you know, just your, your mind just does weird things to you in, in, in stressful situations. Like, why would firecrackers be going off right now? But anyway, at, so at, right as I step out, I look back across, I look across the hall, across this T intersection, I can see they're still uh, fighting with this guy who is on his back. One of the officers are, are on top of him, but I can see that the officer's rifle is slung on to his back and are suspect has his hands on the AR-15 and the second officer mm -hmm. is there basically controlling the barrel of this AR-15. So as I see that, and for those of you who've been to the, the gun range and know that that undistinct smell of, of, of a gun being fired, just the burning gunpowder, I guess I'm not a huge gun guy, so I, best that I can explain is just the gunpowder that's burning, especially in an indoor range. I smell that, I see that, right then I'm thinking, oh shit, this guy just fired off a couple rounds. So as I see that, like my eyes come down to come down and I see that Sergio is, he's, 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 he's down, face down, but he's down in a way to where it almost looks like he's ducking. So I get down next to him and I'm like, holy shit, dude, what was that? What happened? And there's no response from him. So I grab onto his vest. I push him over to, to get a look at his face. And then I can see his eyes are closed. So I immediately, I know, okay, he's, Sergio's been hit. Um, I, I yell out uh, as loud as I can, officer down. My team leader, he comes in. Um, um, 
he doesn't doesn't ask what happened. He goes right. I mean, it's like when they talk about you know train like you fight. Like I, I cannot stress that enough because even as as a as a newer SWAT officer at the time, the training just kicks in, and we had just went through officer down drills, and it's like you don't in the moment even have time to think. Holy shit, this is you know my best friend is here down. It is. My friend is hurt. Let me get him out of here. And the training that we went through, it just it, it instinctly kicks in. So my team leader, like I said, doesn't go into the, hey, what's going on? What happened? His training kicks in. Hey, grab his legs. I got his upper body. Let's go. And we extract him out of the apartment. Um, the SWAT team that was across the street uh, from our neighboring police department, they actually had a SWAT medic assigned to their team. Um, we obviously put out over the radio what, what has happened. The SWAT medic, he runs across the street and he immediately starts doing his 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 work and i think that was the point to where that's when it starts hitting me like holy shit my, my friend is hurt this is you know i i've, I've gone to I, i've seen other officers you know be hurt not seriously injured or anything like that but i i knew just seeing what i was seeing that sergio was, was seriously hurt he there was there was there was no there was there was no react there was no motion from him there's nothing and I was just trying to like tell myself that, you know, maybe he's, he's on, he just got knocked unconscious. He's fine. We're good. You know, we're going to get through this. And the only thing I could think to do was just kneel down next to him. And I'm just, you know, Sergio fight. You're fine, dude. You're good. We got help coming. Uh, whenever we have an operation like this, anyway, we have paramedic staging. So, so they immediately come in. We happen to have the sheriff's department helicopter overhead. Um, to this day, I still don't know how this freaking pilot did it, but if you can imagine a very small street to where you barely had enough room to get a single, uh, a single car, um, to go down the street. Like if there was two cars coming in the same direction, one would have to yield to the other. Cause there's just not enough room for two cars to pass each other. Very narrow street. Somehow this freaking pilot lands the helicopter down on the street. The paramedics grab them. They throw them in a the helicopter and they're off to the, to the hospital, which was like maybe a two or three minute flight from the scene. So um, our, our team leader, uh, actually our SWAT commander at the time, he grabs me and he goes, hey, let's, let's get to the hospital. While all this is going on, they're still inside dealing with the guy. They, they finally are able to get him into custody and they, they do realize that he was able to get his hands on the, the rifle and fire off a couple rounds and that's what ended up hitting Sergio. So we get to the hospital and by the time we get there, cause we get, we drive by car. Um, he's already in, he's already in the OR, um, getting prepped for surgery and all that stuff. Um, they take us to this, this room to, I, I think it's maybe a room where they take, uh, medical students when they're learning, because it, I mean, we were in the room, but we weren't like right on top of the room, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, but we were able to see everything that's going on. So I can see, um, you know, what I believe are signs of life. I'm like, oh, my, okay, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. The nurse, she kept coming out, you know, never, never, you know, realizing now, never making the, I guess, the mistake that some of us make in law enforcement where we tell, hey, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You know, she, she never said that. She just was like, hey, they're doing all they can. Just we'll give you updates when we can, but just know the best are doing everything they can do um, that they can. Everything that can be done is being done. So, Meanwhile, um, obviously calls are being made to his family. The sheriff's department's helicopter takes off. 
heads out to toward the city where uh, Sergio was living, which was about uh, about 30 minutes away um, to, to grab his wife. So um, I, I'm there and the, the surgery is going on for what seems like for 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 hours. But I mean, realistically, it was maybe 20, 30 minutes. They're, they're, they're doing their thing. And I just I mean, just a flood of emotions are, are, are coming over me to where I can't even it's almost like being in a fog to where I, I have a distinct memory of certain things. And there's other things that people tell me all these years later that I said and did that I don't I have no recollection of that at all. But I vividly remember them saying, OK, his wife is on the way. She's going to be here in like five minutes. Um, can you go out uh, and, and meet her and, and bring her in? I'm like, absolutely. So before I go out, you know, the nurse comes back out. I say, hey, you know, tell me, can I go out and say that he's OK? What, 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 what's going on? Look, they're they're doing all that that they can do. Just as soon as we know something, we're gonna tell you. So again, for me, that's good news, right? Oh, they're they're working on him. You know, they haven't they haven't uh, come. Kevin said he's gone. They're, they're working on him. So I go out. Uh, I meet his wife at the helicopter. We go in. You know, of course, like any wife, first things, what happened? What happened? So I'm doing my best to try to quickly explain. You know, what what happened as we're making our way in. By now, his brother-in-law has also arrived and his sister uh his brother-in-law is one of our local uh highway patrol officers um you know same questions hey what happened I'm, and i'm trying to explain what, what you know what happened and as we make our way back up i mean we were there for you know maybe 10 minutes and they did the old hey if we can get everyone in this room and again, you know, look, looking, doing this, what I do now for so long, I, now I know what that means. You know, you being ushered mm -hmm. into a room together, it's, it's, it's not good news. Well, at, the, at the time, I, I didn't know that. I'm thinking, oh man, they're going to come in here and tell us everything is okay. And the doctors come in and just when I saw them and I saw the look on their face, I knew. And they basically, you know, started with, hey, we did everything we could. But and I don't remember what he said after that. I just remember the but and that and that was it for me, for my SWAT commander who was there, who his wife literally was in labor at another hospital when this was going on. So he had to deal with that and then take off and try and go, you know, support his wife through what they were going through. And of course, his family is there. And unbeknownst to me, my my at the time, my fiance, but my my wife now. She had been trying to call me. I didn't realize my cell phone had died, so she's panicking because no one knows all the everyone knows that a Rialto officer was, was down and was hit, but they don't know who it was. The news helicopter's over and the way my wife found out is she woke up and looked on the TV and saw what was happening on, on, on Fox eleven. She sees this happening. She's like, Oh my god, she's trying to call me. No one's answering. Um, she starts making a bunch of phone calls to the station. Of course our station's being flooded with a bunch of calls and it was just it was a lot. And finally, someone was able to speak to my wife and tell her, hey, it was Sergio and, and so on and so forth. But it was it wasn't until they they allowed us time to um, go in and see him. And it wasn't until I walked in and I saw him that I just I fuck, you know, my friend is, you know, my friend is gone. Like we were just last night, you know, parked talking, talking shit with each other. Uh, making fun of each other in briefing and from planning my bachelor party to planning my wedding to planning all these things that we have plans for it's like gone in in an instant hmm. and you know it's like one of those things for you know for what for 
So um, that that was after that point was definitely um, the, the fog that um, that I, that I kind of described earlier. That you kind of you're kind of in this just dense fog of just constant almost exhaustion. Even though I found myself being at home and just just sleeping for hours and hours and hours getting up out of bed and still just feeling just exhausted. It, it, it's just like a really strange feeling. It's very hard to describe. And, you know, it's a familiar feeling because I, I lost my little brother. He was hit by a car back in 96 when I was in high school. And all those feelings then that they're all coming back. And when that happened to, to my little brother, you know, I never, I never sought counseling or anything. There was no counseling that, that, that was, offered to, to us and my family. We didn't go through any of that. It was just kind of one of those, we're, we're just going to deal with it. And, you know, I knew, you know, as an adult now that I said, I, there's no way that I'm going to be able to, you know, recover from this. There's no way I'm going to be able to go back and put my uniform on or go to my locker, which was right next to his locker and go 10, eight. There's just no way I'm, I'm, there's no way I can do this. And, um, after after just some serious um some serious grieving uh i remember uh members of our swat team got together at one of our uh one of our captain's uh houses uh he was a sergeant then but he was a captain when he retired and you know i he he he, he, he i remember he asked he goes you know i'm not going to ask you if you're okay because i know you're not okay um he used a Marine. He talks about, you know, his lost friend in the Marine and, and it's okay not to be okay. Just so you know that. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be okay for a very long time, but you cannot try and deal with this on your own. Um, however you need to deal with this, you need to find a solid support system to help you through this because you're not going to be able to deal with this on your own. And maybe there are people out there who are stronger than me who can, but at me, at me at that point in time in my life and in my career, I, w I wasn't. And uh, I knew if I was going to be able to um, move forward um, with going back to work and trying to carry on for me and my friend who both, like, we had reached our the goal that we had set, which was, man, we want to be SWAT guys. We want to be SWAT guys. And we, and we became SWAT guys. And then I know if the, the roles were reversed, I, I would want Sergio to carry on like, dude, you know, we worked so hard for this and we got it, you know, carry on. If nothing, if nothing but for my memory, do carry on for, for, for me and for us. Um, and it's just, like I said, like as I sit here today, you know, this happened in, in 2007, you know, the, the smells and the just, just everything is just so vivid but there's other things where like i have no idea the days leading up to the funeral i have no idea about i, I don't remember i don't remember you know the quote-unquote uh you know rehearsing that we did on where we were going to bring him in and i i don't remember any of that stuff i i remember his funeral i remember getting up there and, and sharing um my my experiences with him to try and tell people about who this just great person was and just at the same time trying to deal with my own struggles of you know Sergio was a, a husband he was a he was a, a he was a father he left behind two small kids and you know this overwhelming sense of like guilt that I had like uh, you know I, I wasn't married yet I didn't have any kids yet like it's it just it's it was a struggle to say the least it was mm -hmm. it was a struggle
just just hearing you know your partner's story and your story it, i mean it it's it's absolutely incredible the life that that your partner led and and just it, something that really just spoke volumes was the the SWAT commander saying hey it's okay to not be okay that yeah. that speaks volumes yeah and and it really it really put me into this this because i was in this weird space right to where i'm thinking you know I, i'm a police officer I, i'm a swat guy I, I need i need to like suck this up and like you know carry on you know yeah, yeah. yeah. i need to pull suck yourself this up. up and just keep going right right and you know that was just so Again, I can only speak for myself, but that was just so unhealthy for me. Right. And you know, I I, I sat down um, with in the days after that, um, our current police chief was actually our chief then, and he and same thing. He, you know, he talked about you come back to work when you feel you are ready to come back to work, but you need to be in the right headspace before you come back to work. And the department, you know, thank God, provides. Um, you know, counseling that I took advantage of because again, I had the guilt that I spoke about. I had that. And just the, the thought of just losing, like when I say he was my best friend, my, he was my best friend. This was the guy, you know, that my wife still makes fun of us today. So, you know, you and your girlfriend, Sergio, you know, type thing, because we were always together. He, his house was like the focal point of where, there was always a barbecue going on. There was always something going on. He, he lived not too far from one of our local, um, uh, like Indian casinos that we have. So we would go there all the time. And like, he was a person that I spent the majority of my career with. And he was a person who I spent the majority of my time off with, um, to where I have, you know, back then social media wasn't as big as it is now, but had it been, I mean, he would have been all over my, my Instagram page because we were always together. Yeah. And when I was, you know, it was one of those things to where uh, as childish as it seems, but if I didn't like someone or if I was pissed off at someone then he was pissed off at him too and vice versa. I mean, that's the dynamic that we had. And, right. but he was such, I mean, as much of a jokester as he was, he truly gave a shit about people who he served to whether we were investigating a shooting or whatever, or just dealing with an incorrigible 16 year old, you know, he really went that extra mile to, you know, share his experiences with, you know, growing up and just trying to, to, to educate people like, Hey man, the cops, we aren't all the bad guys, man. We, we are some, the, the majority of us are out here doing the right things for the right reasons. And he was, tr he was truly, uh, you know, one of those guys and, to lose him was just like, you know, it, it was, it was rough to where, you know, people, it, it's a very taboo type um, topic, but when things like, when things like that happen, you know, we know that suicide amongst law enforcement officers is, is we lose more to suicide than we do the long line of duty deaths. Mm -hmm. And I would be lying if I didn't sit back and think like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, I, I can't deal with this. And when I expressed that to my then fiance, you know, she basically said, you know what, this attitude of you're just going to suck it up and you'll be okay. Th that's not going to fly. No, we are going to go and we're going to go talk to someone. And we're going to, we're going to get someone to help you work through this because this, you know, I'm not going to lose you. We just lost her. We're not, we're not going to go through that. So, and I'm telling you right now, it was the best decision that I have made 
thus far in my career because it really helped me process and deal with just unbelievable loss and looking back that at you know my personal life i wish i would have had that when i lost my little brother in 96 uh but again it's just something that as you know my kid in high school i'm not really thinking about man i should really go talk to someone about this you know for my you know mental health isn't really on the forefront of a 16 year old mind if that you know makes sense so Mm -hmm. um i think what comes to mind with a lot of the issues of you know, because through Project 109, like we we advocate for counseling, we advocate for therapy, we advocate for getting resources that are non-clinical. I mean, seeking help to create some type of a wellness routine for yourself. And what comes to mind is, you know, especially SWAT guys, but law enforcement in general, public safety, military, you know, fire, EMS, whatever, like we all do stuff that's superhuman. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back. It's just, we do stuff that is the polar opposite of what human nature says. So when the shit's hitting the fan, public safety in in every form are the ones that are sticking with it and staying. You know, we don't get to turn around and be like, oh, shit, this sucks. We're out. We're the ones that are going the opposite way, the wrong way Mm -hmm. of what human, um, you know, human nature tells us. So part of why I think that mentality has has really been pushed for so many decades is because in order to do that, you have to be in this persona 24-7. You have to become this persona. You have to become Iron Man or Spider-Man or Batman or whatever. And you can't break from that because the moment you break from that, it's that, you know, like you said, Lamont, you know, basically train how you play and train how you function. Yeah. And the moment you become human at any point in your life, it's that that fear of, okay, are you going to be able to stay hardened? Are you going to be able to stay superhuman? If you realize at any point over a 30-year career, a 20-year career, a 50-year career, or even a one-year career, if you realize at any point, okay, I'm human, is that going to mess with your ability to run toward the problem instead Mm -hmm. of away, to divert from what is human nature and ingrained in, in us on a cellular level? And I think it, it's such an opposite I mean, it's a mind fuck, really. And I, yeah. I think it's completely wrong, the the basis of the mentality that's been pushed in public safety for so many decades, really. And we know that that's wrong. That's a given. But I, I kind of wonder if that's where it stems from, because I've as you know, being a public safety myself and now just really converting to a police wife. I I ask myself, how did that mentality come to be? Why did I get stuck in that mentality when I was a first responder and how how did that transition happen to get out of it? And I think as society changes and as we view humanity very differently and and things progress and change and move forward, I think law enforcement is finally starting, just starting to get on that bandwagon. And we're realizing that, you know, you guys are still human. You're still humans. You take off that vest and therefore you take off that hardened persona and you have to be able to go back to who you are at your core, your personality, mm-hmm. your actual person. So the real Lamont, not officer or sergeant. Right. Um, right. And, and I think it's really, really important. Like I cannot stress this enough. It is imperative that you as officers out there, you guys allow yourselves to go back to the actual you, not the you that the city expects or that your commander expects or that your partner expects or that you expect out of yourself. You have right. to go back to the actual who you are and and allow yourself to feel those feelings without 
all the bullshit and all the yeah. stuff spinning around saying like, oh, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, slam a beer and keep going. Right. Right. It's, and one of the things hard. that was one of the things that was always said to me is like, you need to stay in either the yellow or the orange. Like you can never like relax and go back to your green or your blue, you know, when you're thinking about threat assessments. And I think, you know, if you spend all of your time off duty in the yellow or the orange, you're going to burn yourself out. You're going to have high levels of anxiety and stress and whatever, which we already have anyway. And, you know, it, it's just not a healthy way to do that. And, you know, what you're saying, Stephanie, is absolutely right. And we've talked about, you know, what can we do to make sure that we maintain our baseline as, you know, know who we are off duty. And it's so, so difficult because, um, you know, we're always doing threat assessments. We're always, you know, looking for that safe way out. We're always looking for danger, um, especially what we were talking about in the very beginning. Like, you know, when over the last year we've had this target on our back, around the clock 365 um so all these things are just hard and very difficult to kind of do but it's so important for your mental health for your physical health because you know we're going to get your high blood pressure up and all these things so you're you're absolutely right um and one other thing i did want to say is uh thank you very much lamont for sharing your story it was it knocked me on my ass it was is such an amazing story so thank you very much for sharing it no, thank you guys. I, you know, anytime I, I tell us a lot, anytime I, I get an opportunity to just kind of talk about Sergio and, and just keep his memory alive, you know, I, I jump at the opportunity. Um, I, I've given um, debriefs to other SWAT teams, um, really in-depth uh, tactical debriefs on, on, on things that happened that day. And it, it helps, uh, it helps again, keep Sergio's memory alive amongst uh, those who didn't know him. And, uh, you know, again, as a newer sergeant, one of the things I try to do every deployment period, every six months before we switch our teams is share the story on what happened. Because, you know, we have officers who were in middle school who are working with us now who, you know, may have heard of what happened and maybe in the academy, you know, you, you get the, the question, you know, how many officers at your agency have been killed in line of duty and, you know, uh, what are their names, you know, those type of things. But they really don't know who Sergio was and for me mm-hmm. yeah so for me to work there and uh, you know shame on me if I'm not sharing you know his story uh our agency right, right. Uh, since it's inception since it was created is I've only lost three officers um and one was in 86 and there was a lieutenant who worked uh when was working when that happened and he was kind of the same way he would share his story and, and what happened that night of and the other the other officer was lost back in the 40s but Shame on me if I'm not sharing Sergio's story to keep his memory alive sure, and not just sure. the uh, you get the email from um, basically saying, hey, uh, October, uh, <clears throat> October 18th, we're going to be shrouding our badges. And, you know, these officers who didn't know Sergio, again, were probably in middle school when this happened. Mm-hmm. No, man, this is what happened to Officer Carrera when they're asked, hey, why are you wearing the shrouds? I don't know, you know, at least here in California, we right, get that every right. now and then. Hey, why are you wearing that shroud? So, um, so again, thank you for uh, inviting me on to, to share his story and like I said, share his memory. <clears throat> now, Lamont, I, um, I got some questions, I guess, yeah. from uh, outside looking in. I, I really hope um, when people see that this episode title, Line of Duty Deaths, because I know that there are people that reach out to me and their partners have passed in the line of duty one way or another. What are some... I don't know, recommendations or suggestions or just things that you have lived to kind of help those affected get through similar situations. 
you got to number one, uh, just allow yourself to grieve. Um, this is something that, at least for me, you're not just going to be able to just suck it up, let me move on and do what I got to do. This is something that is going to be devastating for you, especially if this was a partner that you were close to. And maybe not, Maybe if, if, if you work at a, a really large agency, you respond to a call and you see uh, a, you know, a person wearing the uniform that you're wearing down, and that, that, that's going to affect you. Um, it, it affected me the first time I, I responded to an officer down call, and it was at a na neighboring department, and I, and I didn't even know the guy. I was still on training, and I went home like, oh, my God, you know, Desiree, guess what happened today? And, you know, allow yourself to grieve and allow yourself the opportunity to do what you feel you need to do in a healthy way to get through it. And by getting through it, trust me, you're not going to find the answer out of the bottom of a pill bottle or the bottle of an alcohol bottle. You're not. Um, you, you need to go out and get professional help if you need it. If you don't have uh, a, or even if you do have a super strong support system at home, because I, I had a great one at home. Again, you know, Desiree lost someone too. this. that This was just as much uh, her friend as it was mine. You have to go out and get yourself the help that you need to help navigate the things that you are feeling, be it guilt, anger, frustration, all these different things. And especially now, especially now in the days of social media, I can't even look at some of the comments that are being said on some of the news outlets, not by the news organization itself, but from some of the spectators who are making comments about the officer uh, it, that was just killed in Boulder. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine disgusting. being, yeah, I couldn't it's imagine. It's fucking gross. Right. It's horrible. I, I, thank God. I just thank God that, I, you know, the big thing back then was MySpace. That was like the big social media thing back in uh, when Sergio was killed. Um, but if I were to see some of the comments written about my friend that I'm seeing written about some of these officers that we lose, I mean, I couldn't. So stay away from that. Don't even don't even go down that rabbit hole because that's not going to do anything but just fuel that anger that you are already have burning down in your belly and you don't need that. It's not healthy. Just stay away from it. Um, and yeah, there. If your department doesn't offer offer uh, counseling, man, there's great organizations. Project One Online, great places who can put you in touch with people to get you help. Don't don't try and get through this alone because. Especially if you are the partner officer, you know, you're going to have um, questions from the surviving family members who um, I can only imagine my wife if something would happen to me, the questions that she would have um, for those who are the, those who are surviving, she's going to know every detail. So, mm -hmm. you know, just be prepared for that and, and you know, be prepared to, to answer the tough questions if you if, if you're able to now obviously if it's going to compromise some sort of ongoing investigation but just be just be pre prepared for all of that and just know depending on the circumstances two or three years later all the stuff that you are just kind of starting to get some normalcy back in your life if there's some sort of court proceeding that has to happen all that stuff is going to is going to come back all over again because um you know going having to go to go to court and testify about what happened um, when, you know, the defense attorney is just doing what he is constitutionally bound to do. Just give his guy a defense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it really puts you in a space to where you have to be in check of your emotions and not allow yourself to lash out because everything in your, in, in your power is telling you just, 
what you want to do, you know, you shouldn't do because you got 12 jurors who are sitting there looking at you like this guy is not even in control of his own emotions type thing. So, right. you don't, know, don't jump across the thing and choke the defense. Right. Exactly. That's what I was getting at. Don't do that. Just get up there and do your best to um, tell exactly what happened the way it happened. And, and that's what I did. And the emotions, just like, uh, you know, years later, I'm sitting here t- t- telling the story, you know, those emotions come back and, now you're you're going through this all over again uh, for some sort of court proceeding. So you you got to make sure you you have a, a healthy support system to help you n- navigate these feelings that you have. Because um, again, we lose way too many officers uh, to suicide, and um, it's 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 preventable. It it really is as long as you get that proper support. Well, Matt, what is what is your advice from? you know, having lived it and from your perspective, just like as a police wife myself, what is your advice for, um, for the, the police spouses out there? Like basically what, what did you need from your now wife at the time? You know, what were some of her questions? How did you handle the, you know, being bombarded with her emotions and her questions and stuff at the same time as you're trying to process everything. Cause I know that's something that, you know, officers go through everywhere is what, what do you do with your, your significant other? Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that was, that was, that was a challenge in itself. Cause again, she was, she was grieving also. And, you know, one of the first things she said, she was like, I don't want you on SWAT anymore. You're done. And, um, you know, I, at first I was like, you know, yeah, you're right. This, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, this, this is, this is, this is too much, you know, but after, after we were able to go and, and, and seek kind of professional help and, and kind of help navigate through some of the feelings that she was having, you know, it's important for her to seek uh, counseling it, just as important as, as important as for the officer who's involved in the incident, because just because the, the police spouse isn't there, wasn't boots on the ground when this happened, they are going through the struggle just as much as you, if not more, because now that worry is going to be extra heavy on their shoulders every time you leave the door. So, um, you know, for the police spouses, I, I would just say, you know, just initially just patience and understanding, knowing that your spouse, your officer is going through a, a truly traumatic incident. Um, but for you officers out there, you know, don't shut your spouses out, man, because there's only so much of that that they can deal with. They, they can't be closed off to where they see you hurting and you're struggling and you're just either lashing out or you're just completely stonewalling them. It's not, it's not fair to them. And, you know, heaven forbid if you have kids who are now witnessing all this. So you, you, you can't do that. You have to, you have to let them in a little bit. You have to, in order to have a healthy relationship of mutual understanding of, okay, babe, I understand what you're going through. I understand your worry and, you know, let explain as in much detail as you can to them what happened and, and how, how you are going to try to, you know, continue to be safe and protect yourself. Um, but at the same time, um, you, you're the, the spouse of the officer needs to be again, just a little bit patient and a little bit understanding, especially in the early, early stages of that. Um, again, not telling you officers it's okay to shut your spouse out because it's not, you have to let them in because they're, they're going through it with you just, just as much as you are, even though they weren't there, they're struggling too. And they're getting questions from their friends like, Oh my God, what happened? What's going on? You know, so just patience on both ends and under and mutual understanding. And if, uh, the counseling is the right, the route that you decide to go, 
go together because it, it really it is very beneficial, at least in my situation, very beneficial. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, it's, it's so important. We always talk about partnerships, right? And I mean, that is when you sign up to be a police spouse or a first responder spouse, that's what you're signing up for. Like, you know, you, we always tease and we talked about this, Stephanie, in the previous episode about badge bunnies. You know, everyone wants to, <laughs> everyone wants to get with the cop because of the status and because of the uniform. And yeah, he looks good in it, whatever. But I, this I, is that, it. That I disagree with. I do not. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We have covered this. It, an ugly ass dude could put on a uniform and you go from a zero to at least a six. <laughs> Automatically. I just want to give Absolutely. a quick message to the badge bunnies out there that might be listening to this because badge bunnies usually soak up anything to do with law enforcement. They can get their ears on. So... <laughs> For all you badge bunnies out there, let me tell you something. As a police wife, this life is a bitch. <laughs> like yeah. this lifestyle is really, really hard sometimes. Like it's not all fun and games. And believe me, like you don't always get to see them in uniform. You still have to deal with their bullshit when they're in civilian clothes. <laughs> so probably having more of pan- that. Yeah, having oh. panic, panic attacks at three o'clock in the morning, like myself. Yeah, that yeah. was fun. That was fun yeah. to discover. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's my, a different world. My wife says everyone wants to be a police wife until you become a police wife. And it's like, what in the hell did I sign up for? So, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. I am so there. I can't even begin to tell you how there I am right now. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and then that's the, that is the good part as a police officer, having that support system there, you know, so don't, don't neglect it. Don't shun it out. Like you said, Lamont, I think that's so important. And we've talked about it in the past about how, you know, if you don't open up to them, you're going to seek somewhere else to open up to, and it's going to be in a different way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everything you said, Lamont, as you were telling your story, especially post event, you know, you were talking about spouse support, you were talking about seeking mental health uh, assistance, like that's everything we've talked about in these Project 109 episodes. And it's really, it's, I don't know, it's kind of putting the mosaic together. And you're really looking at it like, yeah, this is, it, it all goes together. And obviously, when you deal with a critical incident, that's, you know, that's game time. That's when all these things that we practice, you practice how you play, right? So, yeah. You know, when you practice mental health, when you practice physical health and, and, and healthy relationships, things like that, when, when a critical incident happens, that's when it all comes together, all hands on deck. And, and, you know, we got to keep, got to keep the ship right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that you had that forethought while this was happening to, you know, not go to the bottom of a bottle and, you know, you saw it, all the healthy responses and, you know, hopefully every, so hopefully everyone listening takes that same route. And I've talked about this story before. I had a guy reach out to me uh, when I started my page and he was from Arkansas. And I I used to do code four checks on my page all the time, like once a week, once a month or something. And he reached out, he goes, man, I'm not, I'm not doing too good. I'm like, man, what's going on? And you know, we, we all get in bad days. So, you know, I was just thinking he's having a bad day. He's like, man, my, my partner was just killed at our police station last week. So, you know, we, we talked a little bit, we got some stuff out there and, you know, I just made sure to always check on him. Like at least I did it like weekly. And then as he's, you know, seemed to be doing all right, checked out on him like every, every six months or whatever. So I keep checking on him and it's just so important to have that kind of support system, whether it's, you know, some idiot on a meme page, whether it's your buddy across town, whether it's your wife, you know, and it's, I don't know, Lamont, you did, I think you exemplified everything we talk about here about healthy yeah. responses to 
to trauma and and things like that. And yeah, even the people who didn't like even the people who are are in in the trauma and they're in the shit right now and they went to the bottom of a bottle or they went you know the pills route or they went you know the extra women on the side route it's not too late to pull up from that and and reverse it it's not too late so it's not that you necessarily i mean lamont you were extremely lucky to have that forethought and and that was that was incredible on your part because you saved yourself a, a whole new level of hell. Um, but for those out there who they did go, you know, the dark way and they did, you know, take the harder road. It's not too late to, to get out of that. It's not too late to get help and to get back onto a healthy path of healing and, and bouncing back. It's, it's never too late. So no, you know, because I can already, I can already like sense the listeners that are going to say like, oh, well, I fucked myself there because, you know, it's it's too late now. I didn't have forethought. And it's, you know, it's okay. It, it's okay that I feel like one right. of the most important parts of this, you know, especially Lamont, everything that you said, I mean, you have to honor your feelings when you're feeling it. You have to honor where you are in the process and the grieving process. And, you know, there's multiple stages of grieving and you may not always recognize them all and you may not always go in order. Um, but it's, it's important to make sure that you, you just allow yourself to be and be whatever that is in those moments. Absolutely. And, you know, to just the supervisors, those first line supervisors out there, man, look out for your people. They, Mm -hmm. if you have a young officer, who is just back from maternity leave and now she's pulling a kid out of a pool and giving CPR and that kid later on passes away. Yeah. Maybe for, you know, you or, you know, as a supervisor who's been on for almost 20 years, Oh man, that sucks. But you know, 10, eight on to the next. No, 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 no. You need to make sure your people are okay. And um, the, the, we, we could talk about generational differences, you know, that's a whole nother episode, but seriously, it's okay to do those code four checks. Just like, you know, 10, just said, you got to check on your people and mm-hmm. pull them aside one-on-one and just really get a poll get a reading on them. And hopefully as their first line supervisor, you should be able to tell if your guys are okay. And I can tell, oh, I know yeah. my team, yep. if I come in and a guy who's always chipper and smiling, he comes in, he's not, you know, that guy, then there's probably something going on. I need to check on my guy one-on-one, not busting them out in front of roll call. No, no, no. Talk to that person one-on-one and just, yeah, just those critical incidents that may not be critical to you may be extremely critical for someone because after we had kids, I told my wife, like, oh my God, like before pulling kids out of pools or doing CPR, it was just like, oh man, it's poor, it's poor kid. But now as a dad, you know, I, I see my, oh, this give me my son, this give me my daughter. And it, it definitely takes yeah. a different toll on you. So just supervisors, look out for your people, man. Seriously. Yeah. You. Well, yeah. A hundred percent. Know, know your people, mm-hmm. make those connections because the same token is those guys, those girls are, are here at least in my department for at least 25 years. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that you leave them better than how you got them. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how I look. The only other thing that I would, I would up the ante and it's not just your first line supervisors, chiefs, DCs, captains, check in on your leadership because yeah. the same token is, you know, and, and this one hit me just recently where it's, Hey, you check in on your guys, you make sure your guys are good. Well, 
who's checking in on your frontline guys? Right. Wow. It's it's a lonely little island sometimes, and Good you're point. fighting battles. You're fighting battles for your guys you're and girls. Out fires <laughs> right. But who's checking on you? Yeah. But that's that's where I think our mindsets sometimes also need to go. Is hey, we're we're doing better, and and honestly, I would love to work with you. Like yeah. I, I just feel like you have this energy, like you care about your people, and that's the whole thing. Is we can always do better. We we can Absolutely. learn something new every day, and just just take care of your people because that at the end of the day. Your, your troops are your troops. I've worked uh, for and with a lot of sergeants um, across the, the you know, three departments that I've worked for. And I think the greatest sergeant I ever had, which actually fast forward a little bit, he ended up, he went to the academy with my husband. And so it, it turned out to be a really small world when my husband and I met. Um, but this sergeant was phenomenal. He would check in on us. Um, some, some weeks it would be every night during our rotation, he would come and spend 30 minutes with each of us and he would just sit down and kick his feet up. And he's like, so how's things? And, and when yeah. he started, it was like, uh, things are fine. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no, 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 really. Like, how are the kids? How's, you know, how's life? How's school going? You know, cause he knew I was in school at the time and it was like, okay. And, and we really developed like a friendship and a rapport and it was phenomenal. And you come to expect it. So when Sarge doesn't come in and kick his feet up and sit down for your 30 minute, like, you know, bitch yeah. session, it's mm-hmm. like, all right, well, where, where's Sarge? What's up with him? Um, and he, he's a phenomenal leader. I mean, he's a, he's a colonel in the military. Like he just, the dude is just leadership all day long. And I wished like every supervisor that I ever worked with was like that. And and I made sure that I, I told George, cause I mean, a, like we're all friends and he knows him and B you know, when, when we found out that my husband was getting promoted, I was like, do this for your people because this mm-hmm. makes all the difference. Like go pull up next to all of your people. Even if it, you know, you got to do two a night or whatever, go car to car with them, give them 30 minutes of your time and just let them talk about whatever they want to talk about. Cause mm-hmm. it made all the difference in my career. Like that was the one thing that was, it was everything. Yep. And I can tell you personal experience myself. I have had one Sergeant that to this day, he's not even my direct sergeant anymore. Come up to me. We'll start by shooting the shit. You know, we'll talk about food. We'll talk about baseball. And then suddenly it's like, you good? You know, how are things? How are things on your squad? Everything fine? And like I said, he is not my direct supervisor anymore. But I feel comfortable telling him these things because of the rapport I had when he was my direct supervisor. And I am not the only one that feels this way either. Um, and it's just... Of course, it's good to have that in general, generally speaking, in the department. But when it's a supervisor and like, I don't know, when you have a super, supervisor who is not just an authority figure, because so, a lot of guys, I can tell you right now, they're listening. is like, man, if my sergeant rolled up to me and went, went car to car, I know I'm getting a write up or something crazy is happening right now. Like it is not just to chill and BS for, for five minutes. So, yes, I think that starts from day one. The moment you get assigned your troop, you should start, you know, making those contacts and being like, Hey, yes, I will lay down the law when I have to, I will, I will come get your ass if I have to, but understand that this is a partnership. Like I'm your boss, you know, and, and that has a side to it. But on the flip side, I see you more than your spouse does. I I, I see you more than your family does. If you got something, let me know. And you know, it just, it's so important. So important. Yeah, the, the 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 days of being that hard nosed sergeant who you know up in the ivory tower who you expect to be feared, man, I I, I can't stand that. And, and 
and not so much at my department, but I've seen it and I just, it just makes me sick because it's like, really, do you expect your people to go the extra mile for you when you're acting like that? No, they're going to punch in and punch out. You want to be the sergeant to when you call and like, dude, I'm short. Can you please come in? You know what? Because you're asking, I'm going to come in. Great, man. I love you for it. Come on in for me. And, you know, it's just, if you are, if you are that sergeant, man, just seriously take a hard look in the mirror, man. And you just got to check your ego out the door and realize that these people don't work for you, man. You work for them. And if you're not doing what's right for them, then you're not doing what's right for the organization. Because, you, you know, that whole argument of mission first. And I, and I, you know, again, that's a whole nother debate for another day. But if your people are happy and you're fostering an environment where people want to come to work and work, then they're going to do a good job for you and thus make your organization and your mission successful. So don't. And it also goes to that whole perception of, hey, I don't care what's being said outside. Inside, we're bulletproof. Yeah. My boss has my back. Yeah. Yes. And even when you're guys that when you have that mentality and you make a mistake, um, if you if your people know that you have a true vested interest in their success and their well-being, even when they step on it, they're going to be like, yeah, you know what? I stepped on it. Sorry. And they're not going to come up with a bunch of excuses or whatever, because they don't feel like you're, you know, you're coming after them in this uh, specific type of way where I, I got you now. No, no, they know. Mm -hmm. I, you know, back when I was an officer, I had, I had a sergeant who's now my peer sergeant, but man, if, if I stepped on it and he was coming to me and he had pen and paper in hand, I knew it's like, Hey man, I, I earned this. I have it coming type thing. And cause I knew he cared about me and it wasn't some nefarious thing that he was trying to do. So. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. recording you, you know, through binoculars. Right. Five right. Away. right. No, right. no, yeah. no. Yeah. It's, so it's much more open and much more honest. And, you know, the, the officers don't have to hide from the sergeant. The sergeant doesn't have to play catch up with the officers. It's just, it's not a healthy way of doing business. Nah, man. All too often though. And, and this is how I was as a patrolman where your boss calls and it's, uh, the pucker factor. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> I yes, screw yeah. up now. I had it. So I had one supervisor who on third shift, if there was a typo in the report would come out over the radio and say paragraph mm -hmm. three, line two, fix it. Oh. I had that too. I can speak yeah. to that. Yep. Yeah. Nope. No. That is not how I will lead. That's no. not how I want to be led. No. And that's the whole point. You take care of your guys and, and they will take care of you. They will move heaven and yes. earth. Yep. Yep. I think the two yeah. of you guys should go do a podcast about leadership. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you guys can do a whole episode all by yourself. That's right. Right. Whatever you're but, ready, George. Ah, sounds good, man. <laughs> sounds perfect. All right, guys, we are going to uh, wrap it for tonight. This was absolutely amazing. Again, Lamont, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Um, you're a rock star, dude. Thank you. No, thank yeah. you guys. Thank you guys for all the work you guys do over at 109, man. I've been checking your site out and it's just officers we we need that and there's not enough organizations out there and it's sad to hear that some police agencies still don't offer those type of services to their folks uh do yeah. because budget or whatever but it just it blows my mind and um i'm blessed that we have that here but if your department doesn't man reach out to organizations that do do not fight this sure. do not fight this alone don't yeah well uh, once again, thanks, Lamont and Stephanie and George. Thank you so much for inviting uh, uh, me. And uh, everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sometimes it's hard to say the right thing the right way on the hardest day of your life. Breathe, 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 breathe.
closer And every year it gets a little bit colder All right, we are back, and uh, once again, we both, or all three of us, want to thank uh, Sergeant Corker for giving his time and telling us that story. I, I don't know the closeness that they had was just so evident by what he spoke about and how he spoke of of his of his buddy. Yeah, that was an unbelievably deep and emotional conversation, and it's amazing because you don't. I mean, you think about the the hypothetical what ifs and the the oh shits and what do I do if, um, but like every, every, like the things that nightmares are made of for those of us in public safety, this all came to a head and in this one, you know, 10 minute incident for Lamont and and Mm -hmm. his whole team. Um, it's just, it's incredible. The amount of strength that it took those guys to be able to come out of that situation and for Lamont to be able to step up and say, Hey guys, I have a problem. And then to mm-hmm. fix it, mm-hmm. those are multiple yeah. steps that it takes. And he hit all of them. Some right. with the support of his wife, you know, being the catalyst and others that he had the wherewithal himself. Um, you know, and obviously we don't know what the rest of his team is dealing with or, you know, how they dealt with it. But I mean, it took a hell of a lot for Lamont to get to the place that he is. And I mean, good on him. This was, this was one hell of a conversation and I'm glad we had it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's important. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, you know, this is the worst case scenario in law enforcement. Like, this is the thing that you don't want to talk about. It's like you said earlier, George, it's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a sad situation, of course. It's never not difficult. Um, that 10-minute incident that Lamont experienced ha- is going to carry him the rest of his life. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just it sucks. It sucks that we even have to endure it, but we all in, in public safety, whether you're fire EMS, whatever, we all kind of, we know when we sign that, you know, sign that paper that that's what we're signing up for. This is unfortunately the worst case scenario, but this is a possibility. Um, and I, you know, a lot of people that listen to this, to this podcast are not sworn law enforcement. They are aspiring sworn law enforcement or, or, um, jailers or whatever. And this is really when you're thinking like, man, I want to be a cop. Like, don't think about, I mean, of course, think about the uniform, the cars, the, the hot calls, all that good stuff, but you need to realize, are you willing to put your, your life on the line for strangers? Like this is, this is it. And That's it's where the a, rubber meets the road. Like a hundred percent. Yeah. It's one thing to think it. And it's one thing to hear people say like, Oh, are you ready for this? And a lot of people think like, Oh, this is my call of duty moment. Mm-hmm. But it, when when push comes to shove, like, do you actually have the balls to do it? And there's tons of officers out there that you're you kind of look at and you're like, yeah, he would totally handle that, or yeah, she would totally handle that. And sometimes they don't, and you know, it, it's it's a hard thing because you're asked you're asked to basically admit whether or not you can do something without having ever done it or faced it before. 
And so you're putting a lot of stock into a hope or a thought process mm-hmm. or a, yeah, I saw that on TV and I think I could do that. I could totally do that. And then when you're in the midst of it, it's, oh my God, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. oh my God, I totally got this. Or, right. whoa, I made a mistake, you know, and, mm-hmm. and everyone falls in a different category and, and it's not right, wrong or indifferent. It just, in this profession, you guys are all asked to do something superhuman without having ever done something superhuman before. Right. And you don't ever know if it's going to work out or not. Yeah. I think it, um, a lot of it comes down to training, of course, and that, you know, we're not a training podcast. I'm not going to start doing that, but you know, obviously George and I with law enforcement, Stephanie, you with the military or, or when you were in other realms of first responders, uh, public safety, it all comes down to training. Like that's how you know you're going to be able to do that. So first off, I don't want people who aren't law enforcement to like be listening and be like, Oh God, I, I can't do this. I'm afraid to die. No, that's not the whole point. That's if you're not but, scared, you're you've got screws loose that you should be reconsidering the job anyway. I mean, right, everyone right. has a healthy level of fear. That is totally and completely normal and fully expected. The other right. thing is that the training is what helps you make good decisions to help with good tactics. Um and, and that's what will win the day um, and increases your sur- survivability. Um, because again, you can't take, you know, a police explorer, throw a vest on them and expect them to, to do well in any type of scenario. The same mm-hmm. token is the, the training has to be of quality. Can't just be, mm-hmm. well, we saw this on YouTube, so we're, we're implementing this. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the same token is there's plenty of that though. Oh, a hundred percent. But I'm very fortunate. I have, uh, a good friend of mine uh, who has encouraged me, has pushed me to always, you know, fight your clone. If, if you had to fight yourself, would you win? And if you couldn't win, how would you beat yourself? Mm-hmm. Every day is a competition against yourself to get better um, through, you know, training. As you put it, this isn't just a, a training podcast, but that's the whole point is sometimes it also costs you money to get better. The department mm-hmm. isn't going to cover it. Right. It's on you. You know, when it comes to defensive tactics or firearm training or whatever might be necessary, um, you're going to get through your department the bare minimum to say that the state says, hey, you can still be a law enforcement agency and that's mm-hmm. it. What it's supposed to do is entice you to go look outside and, and get yourself, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, get to a shooting team, stuff like that. So hopefully you are. And something – this conversation just triggered a, uh, a quote and I'm going to say it. It's courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that's, that's this career. That's, you know, whether you're again, law enforcement, fire, EMS, so on and so forth. That's what it comes down to. You know, I'm sure George, you've had instances in your career where you're like, going into it, you're like, well, shit, here, here we go. And then you, obviously you've walked out of it. Same thing with mine. And, and I, I can always tell when that's coming. Like, you know, the, the hair steps up on the back of your neck and you're like, all right, here we go. Like this is the drop of the roller coaster. It's popping. Here we go. You hear it in your dispatcher's voice. (laughs) But that's the other thing is it's not until usually after where it's like, oh, wow, that could have went sideways Uh real quick. Yep. Well, in this case it did. Yes. And the same token is hearing his story, but also hearing about his uh, leadership style after it is how it shaped him. Yeah. It's absolutely one of those things where you just go, 
holy crap. Like mm-hmm. through such adversity, he came out on the other side and, and is changing things and doing better for his department. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's the biggest thing is learning from these incidents so that we can do better. Of course. Of course. Like I was saying in the beginning, like that's the only way to make sure that these, these sacrifice is not in vain is that to learn. And, and Lamont, I mean, everything that we have talked about, Stephanie, obviously George, this is your first episode with us besides the first one, but everything that we have, no, no discredit to you. Welcome um, to the Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but everything that we have talked about, and I said this in the interview up to this point about making sure you have good, uh, a good base at home and, and, you know, not being afraid to to put in the work in therapy and things like that. Lamont personified absolutely everything that we have said, like this needs to be done. He's a and rock star. Exactly. And he's, you know, it's proof is in the pudding. Like he, he is where he's at right now because of that, you know, he didn't let, you know, his, his best friend passing away, stop him. He didn't let the guilt or survivor's guilt or whatever from that, lead him to a life of addiction or something like that. You know, his wife, as we said, helped push him to where he needed to go. It's just a great story in, in such a terrible situation that, you know, everyone listening, you've heard hopefully the second episode of the podcast with Lamont. If not, please go listen to it. Um, just an amazing guy. And he's done an amazing thing again in, in such terrible circumstances. Um, I don't know. I, I really just can't say enough about him and, and what he was able to do. He he is one of those people who took such tragedy, mm-hmm. but he has used it as a motivator to to do better, to to keep his friend's legacy going long beyond him and making sure that he he's never forgotten. Right, right. He has taken it and I I would honestly tomorrow, if if I could, go work for that agency. Because just talking to him, it's like, holy crap, I want to go work for him. Like yep. he's a boss that I, I want to work for. Absolutely. I, I agree hundred percent. And I said I tell them that all the time when we talk, not even on here. And I'm like, dude, like I'll move to California tomorrow if I could work with you. That's it. Absolutely. That's like, yeah. That's just, just make sure there's enough room for me, man. It, it, yeah, that's all yeah. I have. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> the trifecta. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I no. think part of part of what Lamont had said with, you know, how he talked about therapy and his relationship with therapy and, and how that worked for him. I think as much as we talk about training and, you know, you've got to train how you're going to play and, and create that muscle memory. Um, I mean, counseling is not always just for people who are actively having issues. Counseling mm-hmm. is something really great to have in your back pocket and to have in your training repertoire, you know, to help build some of these skills and help build some of these coping mechanisms and abilities before the shit hits the fan and before you need them. You know, it. why are we spending all of our time on tactical stuff and and this move and that move and how to serve this, you know, warrant and that warrant and respond to these different calls when we're not also putting the same amount. I mean, cause that 100% has its place. I'm not saying we should take away from that. I'm saying we should add to that, that we need to also have that ability to, to beef up the mental armor the before you need it. And that's like you said, that's where that resiliency comes in. Um, and we have someone, uh, Jeff post, who's going to be, um, I'm going to be posting an episode that he did um, with somebody about resiliency. It, and it's this whole segment on resiliency And it really is true. I mean, therapy and counseling, however you want to look at it or whatever you want to call it, is not just for in times of trouble. 
it's to get in place ahead of the shit storms and in, and use it as a tool of positivity, not not something that's reactive, but something that's proactive. Right, right. Um, speaking from my personal experience with therapy, um, I just started getting back into it um, two weeks ago. That's a good Origi- thing. That's yes. an awesome thing. Good for, you. good for you. Thank you. Thank you. When I first sought counseling or therapy, whatever word you want to use, um, it was reactive. It was, you know, situation happened and I wanted to to fix it. Then uh, things happened and I, I stopped going to that therapist. But now it was totally proactive. I was like, all right, everything's pretty good right now. I don't really have issues, air quotes. Um, but, you know, I know that there are some things that I could be better at. And I can start bolstering. And I got to tell you, I've had two sessions with the with my counselor, and they've both been amazing. Like literally, things that I didn't even know were affecting me, or you know, lingering or whatever. He just was like, "Oh, well, this is why this is an issue. This is why this is." And it was like two hours with the guy, and he's already unboxed so many like demons of mine that I didn't didn't even know were demons. Like scary, isn't it? it it's <laughs> so. It's so good though. And the first day I had with him, I, I, I think I might've told Stephanie, I definitely told a couple of people, like it was a 10 out of 10 day. Like I was, it was amazing. I felt yeah. great. We were texting it, about it. Yeah. I was just like, this is, this is amazing. This is exactly what you want. So again, don't wait for the bad situation to happen. Like you can go to therapy today, like just, you know, find someone to talk to. And I will say that speaking to a professional is definitely different than talking to your buddies. Like, yep, yep. you know, your There's buddies. I'm in a place. Correct. For the buddies. Absolutely. But the same token is there's something when you talk to a professional, there's, there's that light bulb. Aha. Why didn't I do this before? I but it's the neutrality. The but neutrality. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to get a neutral viewpoint or whatever from your friends or your family. Mm-hmm you're going to get their perspective and how, and why you guys jive the way you do in a friendship. You know, it's always going to go in that direction. You need someone else who has a fresh view. You need someone else who has a fresh set of eyeballs on the situation. And that's, that's worth everything right there. So mm-hmm, if you can add that mm-hmm. to your repertoire of training, like you right. would be so far ahead. And something else that I would like to say is that don't be afraid of the bad answer. Like the one that you don't want to hear because your buddies are going to give you what you want to hear. Right. You know, they might, they might not sugarcoat something or whatever, but at the end of the day, they're not going to, they're not going to dissect. Cause like you said, it's not objective. They're still your buddy at the end of the day, but the therapist is going to be like, listen, this is, this is the problem. And it's up to you if you want to address that problem or not. And if you don't, you know, by the weight that's been lifted off my shoulders in the two hours that I've had with this guy, I don't understand why anyone would avoid that. Like, yes, it's difficult. It's like this conversation we had with Lamont It's a difficult conversation, but it needs to be had because it needs to be heard. Same thing with the, the actual constructive part of therapy. But that's, that's the other thing is it's, it's work. It, it takes building a relationship and, mm-hmm. and unfortunately public safety, we're not good at doing that. Mm-hmm. Correct. However, being vulnerable and getting that weight off your shoulders you couldn't pay a million dollars for, for the relief that is felt. Cause I've had it. I've walked mm-hmm. into therapy and went, Holy crap. And walked out and felt complete 180 degrees, just yep, switch. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it takes, as Steph said, that neutral person having that relationship, but it also takes me myself 
putting in the time, the effort, and, and that's what pays the dividends. That's what, unfortunately, sometimes we get tied up in our own self is, well, I, I don't know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do it, I'm listening, mm. but I don't wanna put in the work. Right. Here's the beautiful thing about therapy though, and a lot of people don't understand this, and I think we're gonna be talking about a ton of this in our next episode. The, the beautiful thing about therapy is the therapist is not going to solve the problems for you. And a lot of people are going to immediately right now be like, I'm sorry, what about that is good? But <laughs> it's not their job to solve the problems for you. It's their job to take all of the emotional crap that you dump in their lap through the one hour of just word vomiting, whatever's coming to your mind. They're going to pick out the pertinent parts, remove the emotional fluff that really is not pertinent to the situation at hand. <laughs> They're going to pick it apart and then find the, the smallest amount of details that will still give you the full like overview of the situation and hand it back to you so that you then only see the factual data that's left yes, when you're yeah. done being pissed off and sad and angry and all these other emotions. And they're going to hand it back to you and put it back in your lap and go, okay, now you can fix this mm -hmm. because we've removed all of the things that are really irrelevant that you're, you're being clouded by right now. Now you can see the forest from the trees. So here is that thing back in your lap as a singular form rather than this whole like ball of shit that you just can't unravel. Yep. And, and, and that's where the work comes in. You are still expected to do the work. You're expected to unravel that ball of yarn and start picking at that little piece of chip and wallpaper in the dining room that you just want to pull apart. You have to figure all that out. And a lot of people just don't want to hear that or they don't want to do the work or a therapist hands them back their ball of shit and they go, well, you didn't help me at all. Screw this. I'm out. Mm -mm, that's not how right, therapy right, works. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, like, no, he's he's giving you the floor plans. You got to build the house. Exactly. Like, yes. And, you know, just thinking of my session today, it was, you know, he's like, how was your week? And I was like, oh, it was interesting. He's like, hmm, what does that mean? And then I, <laughs> and then I tell him. wedding. I know. <laughs> and I tell him and he's like, oh, you've got all these really nice things going on. But we spent all the time talking about this. Let's talk about that. And I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't even realize that I was focusing on the one negative because in my head I was, you know, I'm talking about all the positives. And he's like, no, let's talk about this glaring negative going on in, in your life. And again, walked out of it feeling like not that I had the answers, but I knew how to find the answers. And again, not an easy task, but no, for, but for happiness and serenity, it's worth it. Absolutely. And we're twinsies. Cause I had my therapy appointment probably right around the same time that you had yours. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, my therapist is focusing more on, for me, motivation. Mm -hmm. And she's like, girl, you got depression setting in. And I didn't see it that way. You know, I saw it as, well, I'm just sad about a particular situation and the fact that I'm not working anymore. And I'm, I'm being thrown into the situation of being a stay-at-home parent. And that's not what I was cut out for. That's not what I signed up for. Uh -huh. Welcome to police wife life. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to work on those things. And she was like, yes, but we can unravel some of that stuff when you figure out how to like rebrand your motivation and figure out where you're going to get your motivation from because the old motivators you had are no longer an option. So we have to rework all that. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it. But I spent all my days just watching TV or you know, sitting and doing homework or just playing on my phone or playing Call of Duty because that's like our jam in this household. <laughs> um, you know, and to me, it's like, okay, well, I'm returning all my emails and I'm, you know, doing all the things I need to do for school and I'm doing all of the things. And I have, you know, my great Project 109 team who picks up all my slack for me when I'm having my days of like, no, nah, I'll just sit here. Stop <laughs> pointing at yourself. It's not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but motivation is like the hardest part. And I didn't see that motivation at all was like a factor in this because to me, motivation doesn't matter. I do what I need to do. I get the work done. I don't care if I want to do it or don't want to do it in the moment. It's getting done. So to me, motivation was completely irrelevant. But she was able to pick apart all the emotional bullshit that I handed her. And we've been working on this for many months. Um, but today was the realization. And last time was, the, okay, motivation is your problem. Right now, today, motivation is the issue. So we need to fix that. And then we can start digging more into the trauma stuff. And it's funny because in the moments, I'm just like, oh, okay. That's a no for me, dog. But then when I hang up with her, I'm like, oh, fuck, she's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and it had nothing to do with anything that I dumped on her. It had nothing to do with what we discussed or what my issues are. It just, this was the focus of, okay, this is what's going to be the catalyst to get you over this hump to start doing the work in, a, in an easier and more palatable way. Yeah. These are the things you don't think about. So therapy right. has these really weird ways of like twisting things up and it's going to sound very strange in the real time moments. And then at the end, you're going to be like, oh, that makes sense now. I got that. Right. And I think right. that's what people don't necessarily anticipate. And it feels too strange to them. So they're like, uh-uh, pull up, I'm out. Eject, eject. Yeah. Eject. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, and and another thing, and we're going to talk about, like like I said, we'll talk about this all next month. And um, It's going to be episode. so good. It is, it is. But the other thing <laughs> that I'm just going to put as like a teaser, put this in your brain cops when it comes to therapy is always like well they don't understand that's the big thing like like oh you're, you're a, a lifelong academic how could you understand what i'm dealing with on the street get out of that mindset stop mm -hmm. trust the process that's all i'm saying and mm -hmm. again we're gonna we're gonna dive deep into it uh in a month but um we're gonna get wrapped up here in just a minute did you guys want to put anything else out there for for our listeners before we uh say i do as always, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, um, Project 109 across the board. You'll be able to find all our stuff with our amazing little logo that was uh, <laughs> created especially for us. Um, and we've got lots of shirts with that logo on it. So we've got new apparel that just came out. Um, our pre-order just wrapped up. But we've got plenty more inventory in the hopper. And uh, this this theme is the Phoenix Rising. Um, and it's Which I it's love, awesome. by the way. We've had so many orders. Like this one blew the doors off of our last one. And yeah. we've also still got last ones um, as well. Our original uh, tattered flag design. So um, if anyone's interested in apparel that supports our organization, 100% of those um, costs go directly to us. And it's been amazing, the outpouring of support that we've had from from all of the listeners of the 10-8 podcast. Um, so that's been awesome. So go onto our Instagram, check that out. Send us a message if, if you're interested. Um, other than that, you know where to find us, project109.org. Yep. George, anything? I got nothing other than every day is a new day. Every day is a way to make the world a little bit better. And sometimes we just got to let that, that vulnerability out. So give mm. somebody a shot at doing that. Absolutely. And uh, just one note on the Phoenix rising, like that has always been my like go-to symbol because my life has been nothing but rebirth and rebuilding for 20 some years so I, I love that you incorporate that design with with the merchandise so your shirt's coming too i promise <laughs> that's that, that's what i'm excited about all right guys we are going to get out of here thank you so much stephanie and george thank you again lamont and uh we'll be back in a month and we're going to talk about making therapy work for you all right guys we'll talk to you later and uh stay safe see you see ya
Show. 